things for America, but I, I honestly think we need, need to move on. I really do. Former President Donald Trump says he may soon face more criminal charges. How's it all affecting the Republican primary? For Sunday, July 22nd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. More than five months after a Norfolk Southern train derailment upended life in East Palestine, Ohio, we'll talk to the company's CEO about the state of freight rail safety in the U.S. And after their 3-0 win over Vietnam, we look at what the U.S. women's soccer team needs to do to bring home a third straight World Cup. Everybody understands the task at hand. So whoever is playing at their best, they're going to be out there, they're going to perform. And? Trees can't walk as fast as climate change. Helping forests adapt to a warming planet. All that and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A Ukrainian drone strike caused a massive explosion at an ammunition depot in Russia annexed Crimea, forcing the evacuation of nearby homes. It's the latest attack since Moscow canceled a landmark grain deal amid Kyiv's grinding efforts to retake its occupied territories. And now the U.N. is urging Russia to return to that international agreement that allowed Ukraine to export tons of grain from its Black Sea ports. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. And they're certainly encouraging Russia to return to the deal, which is known as the Black Sea Grain Initiative. But so far, Russia shows no sign that it's going to back down. You know, it complains that the U.N. and Turkey, which also helped negotiate this deal, didn't do enough to make sure that Russia can export its goods. The Russians complain about U.S. and Western sanctions, not on food, actually, but on banks. They say that it's making it more difficult for them to finance this trade and to get insurance. And they say they want that resolved first. NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Voting rights activists say they will challenge the latest version of a congressional redistricting map in Alabama. The legislature approved the plan yesterday, but it might not meet with the approval of the U.S. Supreme Court, which started this process. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett has more. Last month, the Supreme Court issued a ruling saying Alabama's current congressional maps do not give black voters an opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. Much of the debate during the special session centered on what opportunity means. Democrats believe a state where one in four residents is black should have a second black majority district of over 50%. Republicans interpreted it by increasing the number of black voters in a second district to 40%. The map now moves to a federal court, which could reject and redraw it yet again. A dispute over the map could also eventually land once again on the docket of the Supreme Court. From PR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. The Senate is expected to launch a series of forum, forums on AI. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. Lawmakers are still scratching their heads when it comes to regulating artificial intelligence and how to keep pace with the technology. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act for the first time will include provisions that would boost AI oversight. An increase in data sharing within the DOD new risk studies to examine explainability in similar issues, and provide for bug bounty programs that will help sniff out vulnerability in AI systems used by the DOD. The White House recently announced a deal with big tech companies to add additional guardrails 
NPR's Windsor Johnston. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Bostonians are getting ready to welcome the National NAACP Convention to the city this week. The convention was postponed due to the pandemic. The organization's Boston branch held a day of service today to kick off the festivities. Local President Tanisha Sullivan says anticipation for the convention is high. We are definitely um, working hard to exceed everyone's expectations for this to be a wonderful convention experience, but also for the city of Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to feel the impact of this convention for years to come. The convention kicks off Wednesday. The public will be invited to the hub from Friday to Sunday. It'll feature feature panel discussions, a career summit, a student exhibition, and more. Search teams recovered the body of a 21-year-old Hopkinton man from a lake this morning, roughly 12 hours after he was reported missing while out for a swim Friday night with a friend. Hopkinton police say the body of Willinson Orbequito was found in 12 feet of water in Lake Maspinock. Officials say he and a friend went beyond the safe swimming zone set up at Sandy Beach and continued further into the lake. Newly released documents are shedding light on a shuttle bus crash that killed a Brandeis student last year. The records obtained by the Boston Globe show the driver in the crash was going 24 miles over the speed limit when he crashed. He had also logged more than 73 hours of work over eight consecutive days. That's more than three hours beyond the federal limit. The crash also injured at least 26 passengers. Most of them were Brandeis students. A privately held biotech company in Watertown is testing a promising treatment for depression. The new drug, Numora, is a daily pill in its final stages of testing. An eight-week study showed the drug led to significant improvements over a placebo for patients with moderate to severe major depressive disorder. Numora hopes to apply for FDA approval in 2025. It's 5.06. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. When it comes to former President Donald Trump's campaign for another term in the White House, the next three numbers tell the story. 71, 2, and 31. 71 is the total number of criminal charges Trump faces in both New York state over alleged hush money payments and a separate federal case over classified documents. Then there are two additional criminal investigations ongoing over election interference, including yet another federal probe that Trump claims has named him as a criminal target. And despite all of this, Trump remains 31 points in front of the next closest Republican presidential candidate and an average of national polls put together by the website 538. In the days after Trump's post on his social media site indicating that more criminal charges against him may soon be coming, we wanted to see how, if at all, this is affecting the presidential campaign. A good place to answer that question is Iowa, and a good person to help give us that answer is Iowa Public Radio's lead political reporter, Clay Masters. I started by asking Clay if it's fair to say that all of this legal drama is only increasing Trump's support among Iowa Republicans. 
Trump supporters, I mean, they're not going to be phased by anything that comes out against him. And if you spend much time listening to you know, right-wing conservative media, a lot of podcast hosts, radio hosts, or bloggers talk about how the Biden administration is weaponizing the FBI. And Trump has had more support from within the Republican electorate in Iowa than he did back in 2016 when he was first running, um, just as in the case of the Republican Party as a whole. So he already has a, a lot more support baked in. And I've had potential caucus goers say to me, you know, this is all just noise that we hear about with these indictments and, and really anything that happens with the former president. They love him and they, they want to support him. It's exciting to be talking about potential caucus goers already with you. But, but you've been talking to a lot of these folks over the months. What has jumped out to you? What are the big themes of how they're talking about and thinking about former President Trump? A lot of the people that are coming to these events are already pretty politically engaged. And so these are folks that want to take Iowa's role of first in the nation serious. They want to hear from these these different people. There was a evangelical Christian gathering uh, a couple of weeks ago on July 14th. Uh, I talked to Dave Totten. Uh, he was there from Webster City in Des Moines where this was happening. And he really likes Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, but he was really impressed with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. And he had this to say about uh, former President Donald Trump. I think he did a lot of good things for America, but I, I honestly think we need, need to move on. I really do. I, I, uh, I think it, too many times I think it became about him. And so you have people that are saying those kind of things. But but I also go back to there was a, a guy I talked to at a, a event for Donald Trump, uh, Rusty Spoor, big supporter of Trump and and says a lot of the things that I had kind of been saying before, that he just sees a lot of the news that comes out about the former president as being noise. Here, mm -hmm. Here's Rusty. I, I believe Trump. I, I, I believe that he can do if he says he can do it in six months, uh, we'll hold his feet fire and, and but I believe he's a man of his words and he, he gets things done and he was responding to uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis who has regularly said you need somebody that can serve two full terms uh, Donald Trump already served a term and Trump has been saying you know we can undo this in in six months or whatever mm -hmm. so he's clearly has a lot of support for the former president one of the big themes of this of this race so far is that a lot of the Republicans running against Trump in the primary aren't full throat criticizing him, right? They are either defending him when it comes to these legal charges or criticizing him in implicit ways. I mean, that, I know that's changed a bit uh, more recently and you've, you, you've started to see more direct confrontations between the candidates. But how have Iowa Republicans responded when other candidates express differences with Trump? Well, the biggest critic that I've seen in Iowa of former President Donald Trump, with maybe the exception of Ron DeSantis more recently, but it's been former Vice President Mike Pence. You know, this is an unprecedented time where we have a former president running and then a former vice president running against the former president. Yeah. And when the, the insurrection at the United States Capitol comes up, he regularly defends his actions on January 6th. And here he was at that uh, family leadership summit talking to Tucker Carlson, the moderator during that, about January 6th. And I'll always believe that by God's grace, I did my duty that day under the Constitution of the United States of America and our institutions held. 
And you hear kind of a, a timid applause there. And that was a very common theme with the former vice president during that event with some 2000 evangelical Christians. And there was even a moment where he was talking about U.S. support for Ukraine with the war in Ukraine, uh, where he was actually booed for saying that the United States should continue uh, providing support to Ukraine against Russia. So how has Trump himself been handling campaigning at this moment in time? Well, Trump really didn't play by the Iowa caucus campaigning rules eight years ago when he was running, and he's certainly not doing that now. And he has a lot more support as well. You know, I mentioned that evangelical Christian gathering. Donald Trump was notably absent from that. And just a few days later, he had a town hall that was on Fox News, hosted by Sean Hannity, and, you know, was being asked these large questions about the race as a whole. So he's really running as the front runner and in a lot of ways acting like he already is the nominee. So there is definitely a lane that he has carved out for himself. And he has a lot of support, obviously, as we've been saying, within the base in Iowa and the Republican Party as a whole. Clay Masters covering all of this and more for us from Iowa. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Scott. And I know you're about to join a team from NPR to bike across the state of Iowa. So please hydrate. <laughs> I will. It's going to be very hot in Iowa. Right. Thanks for the thanks for the tip. Thanks, Clay. All right, now let's turn to the 2023 World Cup. Last night, the U.S. women's national soccer team locked in its first victory. The defending champs defeated Vietnam three goals to zero with star striker Sophia Smith scoring two. Sam Mewis knows exactly what it feels like to play and win at a World Cup. She was part of the U.S. team that was crowned world champions four years ago. This time around, she's sidelined with an injury, and she is covering the World Cup for the Men in Blazers media network. Hey, Sam, welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So we got the first game in the books, US 3, Vietnam 0. What were your takeaways from the game? Yeah, I think the first game, it's just really important to get those three points in the group stage. Um, I also thought it was great to come away with the shutout. We didn't let up any goals. Um, I think there were some interesting things on the field. I was really happy to see Sophia Smith scoring two goals, Lindsey Horan with a goal. Um, I think there's definitely a lot to build on and grow on as we enter probably a little bit of a more challenging opponent next week with the Netherlands. So just really excited for the team to see them get the win, and I'm excited for what's to come. So when you're going for your third straight World Cup, you you open yourself up to a question like this. Is a 3 nothing win a warning sign given the experience gap between the U.S. and Vietnam? Uh, I listened to, to the Men and Blazers podcast last night. You said the phrase shaking the dust off a few different times. Any <laughs> any early flags or worries or something you want to see different next time? Well, I'm not worried for the team at all. I think this team has such an awesome blend of experience and veteran leadership combined with youthful exuberance rookies who are just excited to be here for the first time. So I think it's natural and we're seeing a lot of these first World Cup games have been really close scorelines, even with games like Spain, Costa Rica, England versus Haiti. The, these teams can keep these games really close, which is such a positive testament to the growth of the game globally. So for the U.S. in particular, I think it was great. We got three points. We got a shutout. This team is so good under pressure, and so I think that they'll just continue to rise to the challenge. I'm not nervous at all. I have total faith in them. Sophia Smith is, is somebody who might be on a lot of listeners' radars for the first time. Two goals last night, an assist, great player. What should they know about her? 
Oh my gosh. Sophia Smith is so dangerous. She's so fun to watch. Like you said, she just has such a knack for scoring goals. She's scored so many goals in our domestic league, the NWSL last year um, for her club team, the Portland Thorns. Getting her speed, her technical ability, her strength to hold off defenders in and around the box is just super dangerous for the U.S. Women's National Team. And with such talented attackers, it's a testament to be out there, to be competing in her first World Cup. Um, she's beat out other incredible players to have that starting spot. So definitely keep an eye on her. I'm really excited to see her. She's already shining at this tournament, and she's a great player. You know, Smith has a big night. Megan Rapino comes in off the bench and gets her 200th international appearance for the team. Is this a changing of the guard World Cup? I think, in a sense, um, always having these these rookies who are up and coming, who are pushing for these spots, there's kind of always a changing of the guard within the U.S. women's national team. And I think that that's what makes the program so successful and so competitive. On any given day, somebody can outperform you in training, and that's who should be on the field. Um, so I have total faith in both the veterans like Pino, like Alex Morgan, like Kelly O'Hara and the rookies like Sophia Smith and Trinity Rodman. Everybody understands the task at hand. So whoever is playing at their best, they're going to be out there. They're going to perform. And I think just the fact that the team is so united around that common goal is what has set the U.S. Women's National Team apart. I, I want to end by asking something I've really been wondering about you. I mean, you, uh, you, you, you've played and won the World Cup. Your sister's on the squad this year. You've said your best friend's also on the squad. Is it more nerve-wracking to be walking onto the pitch to play in a World Cup game yourself or to watch from afar from another continent when people you're so close with are playing? Oh, my gosh. I, it should be closer, but it is so much harder to play. Yeah. I was really nervous in 2019. Um, I got to start in the final, and it was just such heightened emotional experience. Um, fortunately, like I have so many close friends on the team. I knew we had so many fans supporting us, and um, luckily those veteran leaders that I've mentioned really just paved the way for us all to succeed in 2019. I am nervous for my friends and for my sister, but... It's fun watching. I have like total faith in the team. I know how hard they work. I know how much the team pushes each other in training. So watching them feels good. Um, it feels like I, I just feel like I can have full total faith and confidence in them. That's Sam U.S. reigning World Cup champion. You can hear her coverage of the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand on the Men in Blazers Media Network. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. Thanks for joining us. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals.
I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A Ukrainian drone strike caused a massive explosion at an ammo depot in Russia annexed Crimea today, forcing the evacuation of nearby homes in the latest attack since Moscow canceled a landmark grain deal amid Kyiv's grinding efforts to retake its occupied territories. This as the U.N. calls on Russia to return to that grain deal. In India, thousands of mostly female protesters held a massive sit-in in the violence-wracked northeastern state of Manipur, demanding the arrest of those responsible for the assault of two women in May who were paraded around naked and molested by a mob. And negotiations are set to resume next week in an effort to avoid a strike against UPS. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. It's been about five months since a Norfolk Southern train carrying toxic chemicals crashed in East Palestine, a town right on the edge of the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, a little south of Youngstown. A number of the cars were carrying hazardous materials, and in an attempt to avoid a possible explosion, There was a controlled, days-long burn of those chemicals. Residents within a mile radius of the crash were evacuated. Days later, the evacuation order was lifted, and some residents say they developed rashes and nausea. The crash became a national flashpoint and a hot-button issue on both sides of the aisle. Not long after the derailment, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw found himself in front of Congress, being grilled by a group of bipartisan lawmakers. In March, Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts asked Shaw whether he would support legislation requiring two-person train crews at minimum. Shaw didn't answer. Senator, we'll, we'll commit to using research and technology to assure the railroad operates safely. Will you commit to a, a two-person crew on all trains? Senator, we're a data-driven organization, and I'm not aware of any data that links crew size with safety. The Railway Safety Act of 2023 proposed stricter safety regulations, including mandating two-person crews on freight trains. Here's the co-sponsor of the bill, Republican Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, speaking in May. What happened in East Palestine cannot be undone. We cannot reverse it. We cannot change it. We cannot undo the psychological, economic, and physical toll of the derailment in East Palestine. But I guarantee you, Whether it's tomorrow or next week or next year, there will be another East Palestine in this country if we do not pass the Railway Safety Act. It's that simple. And back at that March hearing, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine said life in East Palestine stopped being normal. Members of the committee, Norfolk Southern has an obligation to restore this community. It was their train, their tracks, their accident, they're responsible for this tragedy. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating the incident, and cleanup efforts are still ongoing. The residents of East Palestine are still in limbo. Alan Shaw, the CEO of Norfolk Southern, insists the company is continuing their commitment to help East Palestine recover. 
and that Norfolk Southern is now on the forefront of improving safety in the rail industry. I sat down with Alan Shaw to talk about all of this. Scott, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for hosting me. And and I want to start with that gold standard line because we've heard you say it a lot in recent months. What specifically does it mean? You know, for me, it means we're going to continue to enhance safety at Norfolk Southern. Um, We recognize the role that we play in the U.S. economy, and we take safety very, very seriously. So I'm, I look for inspiration, and I look outside of the industry, and I decided to hire the former Anabral, who was the former head of the Navy Nuclear Propulsion Program, as an independent consultant reporting directly to me. And so he's put together a team, which includes several former admirals, all with Navy Nuke experience, and they're going to help us enhance our safety culture at Norfolk Southern. We know that the Navy nuclear program is the gold standard of safety, and Mm -hmm. we will be the gold standard of safety in the rail industry. Have there been any specific changes that you've made since you've started getting that consultation from that expert group? Yeah, we've done a number of things. In March, we implemented a six-point safety plan. You've seen me on the Hill engaging proactively with legislative leaders on both sides of the aisle, advancing various railway safety bills. You know, there there are a lot of things that make a lot of sense to us. And we're not waiting to act. We've hired the the Navy nuclear program. You've seen me um, engage personally with the heads of our labor unions. Uh, I wrote an open letter to all 20,000 Norfolk Southern employees talking about collaborating with my union colleagues on safety. And it was jointly signed by the heads of 12 of our labor unions. The February crash got a lot of attention as you certainly know, but this is a broader issue, right? If you look at Norfolk Southern, you look at the other big rail lines, there were 286 train derailments last year. That's about every other day on average, more than every other day on average. And and that's on the main lines. You know, that's not counting the rail yard derailments, things like that. It's just that they're not carrying toxic chemicals in towns in the way that happened in East Palestine. What's, what's the big picture problem here? Why does this keep happening at this level? And how do you get those numbers down? You know, rail is the safest, most efficient, and most sustainable form of transporting goods across land. And we can do better. Mm-hmm. You know, last year at Norfolk Southern, the number of derailments was the lowest in two decades. And we can do better. And last year, the employee injury rate at Norfolk Southern was the lowest in a decade. And we can do better. There's a bill. It's not quite stalled in the Senate right now, but there's an open question of does it have 60 votes to go forward? Do you want to see something pass the Senate? Do you want to see some sort of uh, rail safety legislation get to President Biden's desk and signed? Yes, we are for bipartisan solution to rail safety. And we understand that it's a industry-wide approach and it's, it includes shippers, it includes customers, it includes rail car owners, and it certainly includes the railroads themselves. And again, we're not waiting to act. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the two crew minimum, though, because that is a piece of this legislation. That was a component of a law that Ohio put in place after the crash. And that's something that the industry has pushed back on, even filing a lawsuit to block that aspect of Ohio's law. Where are you on mandating two crew minimums? You know, what what we're really interested in is focusing on quality of life for for my union colleagues. And there is a component of a ground-based conductor that would improve a predictable work schedule. And ground-based conductor, this is a conductor who's not physically on the train? Correct. And so, you know, we, since I became CEO about a year ago, I've made it a real point to engage with my union colleagues. And we were the first railroad to have paid sick leave for all of our union employees. We're the first railroad to have um, assigned days off for all of our 
union employees since I became CEO of Norfolk Southern. We've been on a hiring spree, and right now we've got about 1,500 more union employees than we did when I became CEO. I guess I have a couple follow-up questions on that. And first of all, can you just explain the idea of a ground-based conductor a little more? Because I think a lot of people hearing this might think, wait a second, how does this work? How does somebody who's not on the train help make sure the train is safe? Well, a ground-based conductor will be at various points along the route. The ground-based conductor will have a very predictable schedule and know when when they'll be able to go home. And they'll be able to assist the engineer with switching cars at local industry. So that's a future where there's one person on the train, there's one person assisting the train, but not physically on the train. Correct. I want to stick with the the crew just for one more moment, because it's something that certainly a lot of the labor groups involved in freight rail have talked a lot about. It's something that's been one of the higher profile points of contention here. I guess thinking about this from somebody who lives in a town that the freight train is coming through, somebody who's not an expert in the field, who doesn't know a lot of the details, they might be thinking, these trains are up to three miles long. Doesn't it make sense to have more people on the train? You know, we have not seen a link between crew size and safety. We invest in safety at Norfolk Southern. We've invested over a billion dollars a year in safety. And you know, we're investing in engagement with our craft colleagues as well, as I noted, because mm-hmm. we're investing in the future. You're talking about working with the labor unions, and you've been doing that and having those conversations. And I saw that letter that, that you signed along with various unions that work on Norfolk Southern saying, we're going to have a conversation. We don't always need to agree, and that's okay. It's a little bit of a paraphrase, but you basically had that message in there. And I know you've been having a lot of internal conversations, but I just wanted to play some criticism from you from somebody. This is Clyde Whitaker, the Ohio State Legislative Director for one of the big rail employee unions. This was speaking at a Senate hearing about East Palestine, and I wanted to just listen to this and, and get your response. This derailment did not have to happen, and it makes it so much more frustrating for us to know that it was very predictable. And yet our warnings and cries for help over the last seven years have fallen on deaf ears, and the outcome was exactly as we feared. I know we were talking kind of broadly about these trends, but what's your specific response to that, that, that something that happened like what happened in February was predictable? as he put it. Yeah. When I became CEO, I charted a new course for Norfolk Southern. And we are investing in our employees. We're investing in safety. We're investing in the long-term health of our customers and the communities that we serve. And employee engagement is a big part of that. And I am very encouraged by the fact that our employees feel feel that they are welcome to raise their hand and offer suggestions for improvement. That's a big part of our safety program. I'm looking for 20,000 voices at Norfolk Southern advocating for safety. And it's been about more than five months at this point since the derailment. Knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? What could the the company have done differently, either leading up to the derailment or in the immediate aftermath of the the derailment? I'm really proud of our response in East Palestine. We had a family assistance center set up the day following the derailment. Uh, We have committed over $63 million to East Palestine, which includes a $25 million park revitalization project. We're working really closely under the direction of the EPA and the Iowa EPA on the environmental remediation, and we're investing in the community to help the community thrive. I go back almost every week, and I sit and listen to the community about what we can do to help 
invest in the community and help it thrive. And I'll keep going back. And each each and every day, we're going to do the next right thing. Let me try that a little differently. What is a lesson you've learned? Not necessarily something you do differently, but what is a lesson you have learned that hadn't quite materialized in your head before uh, after dealing with this experience very intensely? You know, I think what it does for me is it reaffirms my commitment to working in the best interest of our employees and our customers and the communities we serve, which is the commitment that I rolled out in December of last year. That's Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Scott. And Frank Morris was listening into that conversation. Frank covers the rail industry for member station KCUR in Kansas City. Uh, Frank, what did you hear in that conversation? What jumped out to you about what Shaw said and what Shaw didn't say? Yeah, what he didn't say was that railroads really hate this two-person mandate that's baked into this Railway Safety Act. They feel that that's just not germane to the, the, the wreck in East Palestine. There were three people in that crew, for instance. And that it's not a safety issue. They say that they don't have data to back up the assertion that two people are are better than one in the cab. Now, that's a very popular idea, and it makes intuitive sense. And there are anecdotal, you know, instances of two people, the, the conductor helping the engineer through a heart attack or, you know, backstopping them on safety issues. Mm-hmm. But the railroads hate that idea because they are facing a future of autonomous vehicles, driverless trucks, and they don't want to have a statutorily mandated economic disadvantage going forward in perpetuity because of this Railway Safety Act. He didn't quite answer when I said, do you oppose the two-person requirement? But it was clear from what he said that that it seemed like he did. And as you're saying, this has been a really big area of pushback from the rail industry going as far as to sue Ohio to block that part of that state law from taking effect. Yeah, the American Association of Railroads sued Ohio And they'll probably be suing other states, too, because there are other states like Kansas who are proposing the exact same thing, you know, mandating two people in a cab or a train. Again, makes sense intuitively. The unions are solidly behind it, and they say it's a safety issue. But the railroads are, again, facing this driverless vehicle future, and they don't want to be locked in to that requirement. I noted to Shaw that there were 286 train derailments on main lines in, in 2022, and he responded that, that derailment numbers are, are overall down from several years ago. Was that accurate? That is true, but there's a caveat. So in terms of the rate of accidents, it's up a little bit per mile, but the actual number of derailments is down. That's Frank Morris, who covers the rail industry for member station KCUR. Frank, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. been one of the most infamous cold cases of the last quarter century. Who shot and killed rapper and actor Tupac Shakur? Well, police executed a new search warrant in the case this week, and it's reigniting speculation about the people who've long been mentioned in the investigation. It's also raising the question, what could a possible break in the case mean for Tupac's legacy after all these years? No matter how long it's been since Tupac is dead, he's still going to be one of the more famous black celebrities that there's ever been, right? And so there's always going to be a lot of interest in the circumstances of his death. You can hear more tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Listen on air, online, or try asking your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Asia Marquis first started thrifting when she was a kid, visiting secondhand stores with her mom and grandma because they were on a tight budget. Thrifting helped her figure out her own personal style. And when she went to college, people noticed. People just really, oh, where'd you get that? Up thrift store. Oh, I love those shoes. Thrift store. So it just became something that I was, you know, being known for. When I started getting those compliments, I'm like, okay, like, yeah, I shop at the thrift store, but I still look good. Now, Marquis has a group she started called the Thrift Sisters Club in Dayton, Ohio. They meet monthly and thrift together. Maybe you're interested in thrifting, too. Whether you want to find some new summer shorts or find your own style or just shop more sustainably, buying secondhand could be a good option. But it can also be daunting. Our producer, Mia Venkat, teamed up with NPR's Life Kit to offer you some tips. So you've decided you want to go thrifting. Now what? Well, first step is having a strategy. Thrift stores are sometimes huge and disorganized. So Asia Marquis says to look for fashion inspiration online before you head out. You want to look up different celebrities, maybe. Look on Pinterest. Look through magazines. Look at TV shows. She brings screenshots and references as a way to focus on specific items she's hoping to find. She also suggests having a thrift wish list. Think of three to five items you're looking for. Baggy jeans, a pool cover-up, a work shirt. Narrow your search and start in those sections first. And you can navigate the thrift store in a more relaxed fashion as opposed to just kind of looking around like, oh my God, it's just too much. And then you end up walking out and leaving with nothing. When you can, shop for items out of season because fewer people will be looking for them. You can also try going on a Monday or Tuesday because often weekends are when stores get most of their donations. Stephen Emery started thrifting in high school but got more into it a few years ago in an effort to be more sustainable. When thrifting, he stays away from specific colors. I know that I do not look good in yellow. It flushes out my skin. I don't look good in pinks or reds. So I just avoid those colors altogether, and I look at the colors that I know will complement me the best. Look at the clothes you already love for inspiration. What silhouettes are flattering on your body? What textures and fabrics do you like? What brands tend to fit you the best? Lean on that knowledge so you can go through the racks faster. You can also save yourself a ton of time by just knowing your measurements and bringing a tape measure with you so you can assess the clothes for yourself. If you could just know your measurements and you have a tape measure, you can go so much faster through the thrift store, right? Because then you have to remove the part of trying stuff on. Mary Jacobs is a secondhand stylist, meaning she thrifts and curates clothes for other people. She says you don't need all your measurements, but the two main ones are chest and hip. But in the end, the best way to know something will fit is by just trying it on in the store. Make sure you wear something that you can try other clothes on over. And if the fit is only a little bit off, Stephen Emery says think about getting it tailored to make it just right for you. That's always my goal with thrifting. I want everything I have to be unique and like specifically me. Next, Asia Marquis says do a quality check. Is it going to rip? Is it going to pop? Is it going to stretch? Look at the stitching. Make sure the piece is not about to fall apart. Scan for obvious wear and tear like pilling and stains. And don't forget to check the crotch in the pits. And looking at the tags tells you a lot about a garment's quality, especially its fabric makeup. Fabrics that are 100% of a natural fiber, like cotton, silk, and linen, are harder to come by, but they're a lot higher quality, so keep an eye out for them. I honestly can see linen a mile away now. (laughs) Finally, there's an element of chance when thrifting. You could go every day for a week and find nothing you love. But with patience, luck, and maybe these tips, you could strike gold on even a spontaneous trip. Mia Venkat, NPR News. NPR's Life Kit has a full episode with more tips on the topic. You can check it out at npr.org slash lifekit.
This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR Events Newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. At Fenway this afternoon, the Red Sox lost to the Mets 5-4. Both teams play again tonight. First pitch is at 7-10. Increase in clouds for tonight, low around 63. Right now we have 80 degrees under sunny skies in Boston. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 30th, amrep.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Baghdad, hundreds of protesters tried to storm the heavily fortified Green Zone, which houses foreign embassies and the seat of Iraq's government, following reports of the burning of a Koran by an ultra-naturalist group in front of the Iraqi embassy in Copenhagen. A federal judge has ruled that an Arizona law that limits how close people can get when recording law enforcement is unconstitutional. Judge John J. Tucci cited infringement against a clearly established right to film police doing their job. And the new Barbie movie, along with Oppenheimer, are forecast to take in some $250 million in their debut weekend. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. All around the world, people and ecosystems are being challenged by a changing climate. Look no further than the extreme temperatures that have scorched parts of the U.S. in recent weeks. But it's not just hotter summers that we should be worried about. It's warmer temperatures year-round that are changing life in all kinds of ways. In Minnesota, for example, warmer temperatures, drought, and disease have all been putting stress on native tree species there, like paper birch and red pine. And while some trees are dying as a result, others are adapting to a hotter climate. Peter O'Dowd went deep into the woods of Minnesota to report this story. It is a blustery spring day in Minnesota, and this tiny fishing boat is burdened with the weight of a few thousand baby trees and too many grown men. We're on McDougal Lake in the Superior National Forest. The wind is pushing whitecaps over the bow. As we chug toward an island in the middle of the lake, it's obvious why we're here. On shore, the charred remains of a white pine forest are scattered everywhere. This spot. Uh, a couple years ago, 2021, burned in a fire. 
And this crew is walking through the snags and the brush of this island, planting tiny little trees, raising up a tool that looks like an ax, slamming it into the ground, and then putting a plug of a tree in the ground before moving on to do it again. We're planting these trees today, but literally in 200 years, they could be the big trees that we see around. It's just hard to wrap your head around what that means. The Nature Conservancy's Laura Slavsky is managing this crew, and what it means is that every surviving tree will suck up and store planet-warming carbon from the atmosphere for centuries. And this year we're slated to plant about 1,400,000 trees. Does that seem like a lot to you or, or, or not? Once you hear a million, people think it's great, and then I feel like it's really hard to picture what that actually looks like. So now that I've gotten to see a couple years of us doing this, I, I'd say it's quite a few trees. One of them is right here at our feet. So it's so tiny. Yeah. <laughs> How well, old is that? It was grown in a greenhouse for one year. The seed that grew this baby white pine was collected about 200 miles south of here. Slasky says that distance is enough to make its genes just a little bit different from the white pine that grows here naturally. So as the climate's warming, there's going to be more stresses on the trees that are growing in these areas. And taking a species, even though it does grow here, taking it from further south, that's more adapted to warm temperatures, potentially a drier climate. So they're predicted to do better. Um, without a helping hand, I think the forest will see a lot more stresses and mortality in the trees that are here. What Slavsky just described is something known as forest-assisted migration. Some people in Minnesota believe it is the key to reversing the effects of climate change. There are just graveyards of dead and dying birch trees, and there's nothing coming up in the understory. Julie Ederson is a professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth. She had a hunch that a hotter climate might benefit a different kind of tree. So a while back, she took a few species of oak from the warmer southern regions of Minnesota and planted them in the north. Every year, she tracked their progress. To figure out whether or not the more southern population was doing better, and it was. There's significantly higher survival and better growth when they are transplanted into a climate that matches where they used to live. Anderson's work laid the foundation for assisted migration evangelists like David Abaz. These trees are the best chance to help us have a surviving forest canopy in what we call now the Northwoods. Abaz helped start a group called the Forest Assisted Migration Project. He's recruiting seed collectors and farmers to grow what he calls climate smart trees. It's part of a bigger goal to reforest a million acres in the state in the next two decades. Today, we're visiting one of those growers. So over here, these you'll see are all the uh, new red oaks that were just uh, planted this spring. Stefan Meyer runs the Three Oaks Forest Farm in Kettle River. His high tunnel greenhouse is hot enough to pull the sweat right off your brow. Okay, dumbest question in the world. They come from an acorn? They come from an acorn. <laughs> yes, well, there, it looks well, just it like that. Yeah. Um, and they've been gathering them from as far, how far south in Minnesota? Oh, Twin Cities, uh, down even to south of the Twin Cities. Abaz says once Meyer's trees reach a year old, he'll sell them to groups like the Nature Conservancy. If we don't do this, according to the scientists and all the models that I've looked at, we're looking at prairies moving all the way up to Duluth. So we're looking at a great transformation because guess what? 
Trees can't walk as fast as climate change. But there is a risk to moving plants around. A tree that's not native to the forest might carry a new disease or grow so well that it becomes an invasive species. Abaz uses a traffic signal metaphor to describe this problem. He says the safest climate-adapted trees to plant in Minnesota are the ones that are already here, like Myers oak trees with the southern Minnesota genetics. He calls those green trees. Yellow, mm, yield. Trees like the river birch proceed with caution. Abaz says those are already creeping into northeast Minnesota as the climate warms. And then there's the red ones. There's the northern Iowa ones that may eventually get here, but, you know, those really, let's stop and think about this. That's, Give me an example of what a red oh, tree Oh, like a shagbark hickory, tulip poplar, a southern species. Man, I love tulip poplar. I've lived in areas of tulip poplar. Is it appropriate for our area? I don't think so. And so that's the red light. A red light that a researcher in Minnesota's Chippewa National Forest has blown right through. And this is our seedling trail. So what we have here are um, examples of everything we planted. So this is eastern white pine. Brian Pallack is nine years into his own assisted migration study for the U.S. Forest Service. As we walk down this wooded path, even Pallack says some of the trees he planted in this experiment are pushing the limits. There's a thriving bitternut hickory from southern Michigan and Illinois. So we've moved it quite a ways. Yeah, I mean, Illinois is not close, no, really. No, it's not close. One of the more radical uh, species we brought in is ponderosa pine, which is native to the western U.S. This one that we're looking at is from the Black Hills of South Dakota. It's doing quite well. There's another from Nebraska and one from Montana. Pallack says three quarters of the ponderosa pine in this experiment have already died. But when they do survive, they grow like gangbusters. They're the fastest growing thing that we've planted out here. I used to think of some of what we're doing with assisted migration as being high risk, and it is to some extent, but less so as you start thinking about how the climate has already changed in this part of the world. And I don't think that we can sit back and wait and see what happens. Is that why you think it's necessary to push the envelope even farther than you would otherwise? Yeah. With I, these trees? Absolutely. When we're thinking about another 9 degree uh, mean annual temperature increase in this part of Minnesota by the end of the century, we have to be looking at trees that are adapted to that. And they're probably not here right now. 9 degrees. Yeah. Yep. Yes. I think there's a, some trepidation, certainly. Ben Benoit was invited to come along on this tour. He's a district ranger for the Chippewa National Forest and a member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. They've been living with the bounty of these woods and waterways for generations. Every fall, the wild rice grows and is harvested by tribal members throughout this whole area. And um, I understand that rice is in decline. Right, and, and that is one of the, the fears, I think, about climate change. Like, how are those resources that are so integrated into culture and livelihood going to be affected? And it's not just the wild rice. Listen to the oven birds and the warblers rejoice in the canopy above us. Benoit says tribe members believe all living creatures in the forest are like relatives, including the trees. And some people are wary of unintended consequences. Think about cane toads in Australia, he says. Ninety years ago, scientists introduced the animals to control a sugarcane beetle. Today, millions upon millions of them have infested the country. I think that's kind of where that, that trepidation is. Treating things like an experiment isn't the way that we're taught to care for 
you know, our relatives in the land. What do you think your elders would think of seeing a ponderosa pine growing here? I think you would find people who would understand and be supportive of that and people who wouldn't. My grandfather, for example, likely wouldn't want to see those things brought in 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 this way. He'd probably say just leave it alone. But is there time to just leave it alone? People like Chris Dunham with The Nature Conservancy don't think so, which is why there are sprigs of new life popping up along the Baptism River and McDougal Lake. There is definitely some, some poetry in this business. You know, we, we're leaving this legacy. Only about a quarter of the one and a half million trees the group planted this year are from warmer areas to the south. But every one of them was chosen to help diversify the forest to make it more resilient to a changing climate. We're not just like sitting ducks waiting to be wiped out by climate change. We can actively go out there and do what we can do. And in our case, we feel like that means planting millions of trees, taking care of millions of trees, and we just hope that that holds. Every time a crew member strikes the earth to open up a hole, a fledgling tree goes into the ground. Given time, a few of them might grow tall enough to outlive us all. That was reporter Peter O'Dowd. His story about trees and the change of climate in Minnesota first aired on Here and Now, a production of WBUR, Boston, and NPR. At the Women's World Cup soccer tournament in Australia and New Zealand, a lot of focus is on the U.S. team and its quest for a record third world title in a row. But Brazilian superstar Marta is also in the spotlight. She's making her sixth and possibly final World Cup appearance. And though she's won many trophies in the sport, Marta has not won a World Cup yet. NPR's Kerry Khan reports. You don't have to tell Orlando Pride fans how great Marta is. They've treasured her since the NWSL franchise signed her six years ago. Brazilian expats like Bruna Palma were out in full force at a recent home game. It's really fantastic. She came from Brazil. It's really hard to get here. We're very proud of her, so that's why we cheer for her. Yeah, they cheered. Especially when she effortlessly tapped a penalty kick over the head of the goalie to tie the game. Pride went on to lose 2-1, but fan Kate Neal says signing Marta was epic. She brought something we weren't expecting, and besides experience, is also Marta. She's brilliant. Marta Vieira da Silva has been named FIFA's World Player of the Year six times. She has two Olympic medals, and she holds the record for most World Cup goals, man or woman. Now 37, she says this will be her last World Cup the only major prize not on her list. Sexta Copa do Mundo. What does it mean for you? Ah, muita coisa, né? Um trabalho de uma vida inteira. Asked recently by Brazil Sport TV what a sixth World Cup means, Marta says it's the pinnacle of a lifetime's work achieved with great teammates, love and affection. Torna isso muito mais fácil, né? Born just years after Brazil lifted its ban against women playing soccer, Marta grew up playing with boys. She was bullied by many, but outplayed most. At 14, she boarded a bus out of her dusty, impoverished town in Brazil's northeast for a chance to join an all-female team. Within a few years, she was playing in Europe and at 17, scored in her first World Cup.
Julia Bayless Trinidadji is a sports journalist and studies women's soccer. She's not only talented, brilliant player, the best we've ever had, but also she has been such an important voice in the women's game. On and off the field, Marta defies typecasts. In this ad, she's plugging Avon Cosmetics. A gente não é frágil, mas pode chorar. Wearing its bright red lipstick, she also sports during matches. O futebol feminino veio para ficar, então jogue como uma mulher. Women's football is here to stay, so play it like a woman, she hypes. She caused a stir wearing the Avon product during the last World Cup with talk of violating FIFA's ambush marketing rules. Undeterred, She's most outspoken about Brazil's poor investment for younger generations, a big reason the national women's team long relied on older players. After the team's disappointing loss to host France last World Cup, her impassioned plea to Brazil's girls went viral. Women's football depends on you to survive. Value it, she raged. Fast forward to this year's World Cup, and progress can be seen in Brazil. The national team is younger, and many play abroad. They also have a female world-class coach, Pia Sundhaga, who led the U.S. to two Olympic gold medal wins. The team had a triumphant send-off, trouncing Chile in a friendly before departing for Australia. Marta, Marta, she's the queen of football, the crowd sang. 13-year-old Victoria Marinho came with two classmates, both boys. Like Marta, 20 years ago, she plays on the boys' team. Her school doesn't have one for girls. Is that really hard? Yes, it's so different to play with boys and play with girls, so... She stops mid-sentence as Brazil scores again. Then picks up in Portuguese. She says it's not fair that women's sports still doesn't get the support like the men. The stadium was less than a quarter full. After the game, as Marta was boarding the team bus, I finally get a chance at a quick question. How are you feeling going into your sixth World Cup? Feliz, happy, she beams. Carrie Khan, NPR News.